Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Two Free Project podcast. My name is Ramsey Margolis. Today I'm speaking with Winton Higgins about his new novel, Love, Death, Chariot of Fire which will be released on the 1st of June as an ebook and a paperback. It's published by Brandel and Schlesinger. So Love, Death, Chariot of Fire is a historical novel. It tells the story of the last 10 years in the life of Reg Mitchell. Mitchell died of cancer in 1937. He was only 42. His claim to fame is that he designed the Spitfire fighter plane, which played a major role in winning the Battle of Britain three years after his death. Ever since that victory, Mitchell's masterpiece has been a cultural icon, a symbol of freedom, especially in Britain. Winton, what inspired you to write this novel, Love, Death, Chariot of Fire? I found it to be a compelling human story. Here's a uh, modest, decent chap who's got a gift for designing fast aeroplanes who finds himself beset by two horrors. One is that he receives a terminal diagnosis. He is going to die in all probability. The other one coming at the same time is Hitler seizing power in Germany and he finds his country under a similar existential threat, a threat to his family, his colleagues, everything and everyone that he holds dear. So what is his response? His response is the Spitfire. Why haven't we heard more about Mitchell before now? I think Mitchell's problem is that he was the victim of his own success. The Spitfire has completely upstaged him. There is a whole library of books that have come out about the Spitfire. There have been documentaries and so forth. And in all that, Mitchell is all but forgotten. He's just a footnote in many of these books about the Spitfire or about the Battle of Britain. And he comes across, I suppose, for anyone looking for him in those footnotes and odd comments as talented nerd who was otherwise not really remarkable. I remember there being a propaganda film made during the war that featured Mitchell just after the Battle of Britain. Isn't that right? Wasn't that his moment of fame? Well, it was and it wasn't. The film you're referring to came out in 1942. It was called The First of the Few, obviously a reference to Churchill's comment about the few who won the battle. And it featured two of the great names in British cinema at the time, Ian Leslie and David Niven. And it was a fabulous piece of war propaganda, very morale boosting. It was even box office success in the United States. But it completely falsified Mitchell. It falsified his life, his predicament, his family, even the name of his wife was changed in the film. And it falsified his character. He was a you know, Staffordshire lad who, who did his apprenticeship in a locomotive factory. And yet in the film, he's a sort of 
daffy, upper-class Englishman who wears very flash Edwardian leisure wear and lies in the grass on sunny days watching the seagulls to gain inspiration for how he's going to design his plane. It was absolutely nothing like that. Okay, so tell us, what was the real Reginald Mitchell actual life? What was he like as a person? He was a very passionate man. He held to his family very closely. He also had enormous affection for his colleagues and was especially concerned for the welfare of his test pilots who put their lives in his hands, really, when they flew his creations. But in particular, he was a decent man. He was a decent sort of character. And this, of course, is uh, why he so hated fascism and Nazism. He saw them as a gross indecency and capable of destroying everything he saw as valuable. And that is what put him on this mission to create a fighter plane which would deal with a bomber attack which would be the prelude to an invasion of Britain. You describe him as a decent man, and you describe his decency very well. Do you think that that made him solemn? Was he like a nerd, a driven loner? What was he like? He wasn't at all like that. He was a uh, an amateur sportsman. He played quite a few sports, including team sports like cricket, He was a great team player at work. He had no time at all for rank and honours and all that sort of thing. It just completely passed him by, even when he got his uh, CBE. The interesting thing is that at uh, Supermarine Aviation Works, where he worked during these last 10 years that the novel's about, he was known as RJ to everybody from the chairman of the board down to the lowliest rigger and, and typist. So he was a knockabout sort of bloke and he often went down to the shop floor and mucked in, you know, and because he had these manual skills from his apprenticeship and he was constantly down there, hands-on, working on the planes he was designing. I, that's very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. You can't imagine someone in Silicon Valley being quite the same somehow. That doesn't ring true for Silicon Valley. You've rescued Mitchell from a really a kind of undeserved obscurity and you're showing us his true stature. The question that comes up for me is why is this a novel? Why did you choose to write a novel rather than just the conventional biography? Well, a biographer is bound by the same rules as historians in general. They have to stick to the historical record and any rational interpretations they can make on that basis. Now, unless you're a king or something, the vast majority of the things that happen in your life are unrecorded. They're not on the historical record. And if you want a three-dimensional flesh and blood sort of character to emerge out of the lifeless, dusty archives, you've got to exercise your imagination to recreate that kind of sense of who this person was and how they lived and why and how they did what they did. So this is why there's a great difference between a biography and an historical novel uh, based on a historical character. In the words of Hilary Mantel, the, I suppose these days the greatest 
exerciser of this craft of the historical novel, she talks about liberating people who happen to be dead from the archives. And she talked about her craft two years ago in the BBC Reith lecture series called Resurrection. And this is precisely what I'm trying to do in the novel, is resurrect Mitchell by filling in the gaps in the historical record. The gaps are pretty enormous in the case of a pretty private person like this. But I think you can get a sense of who he was and how he lived from the historical record and then flesh it out in novel form, as I've tried to do in this one. Uh, surely, though, you have to exercise a historian's discipline in creating a sense of the bigger processes and events that were going on around Mitchell during his last 10 years of life, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think this is terribly important because Mitchell was responding to those shifts and those events that went on during these 10 years that the novel covers. First of all is the 1920s when he was, he was designing working flying boats and other seaplanes which were being exported all around the world, even down to Australia. His firm was expanding. And then, of course, along comes the Depression, like every other aviation company, his is threatened with uh, going broke because all the orders are drying up and he's got to find a way to get the, the firm to survive. And then comes, of course, the early and mid-1930s with the rise of continental fascism and the frustration over the fact that the British government refused to rearm to meet this threat until very late in the day. So he had to work against that nonchalance, along with others, of course, who, who could see the problem as well, particularly Duffy Dowding, who was uh, important in encouraging Mitchell and Supermarine to develop a fast and uh, agile fighter plane, and who ended up, of course, uh, commanding fighter command during the Battle of Britain. You could say of Mitchell that he danced to the music of time, if I could borrow that wonderful phrase from Anthony Powell, who wrote a series of novels about this interwar period in British society and British history. So as I understand it, you're portraying Mitchell as a child of his time in cultural terms. Yes, exactly. He was a child of his time and in a way that I found extraordinarily interesting because back in that time, before what was what's often referred to as the psychological turn in Western culture after the Second World War, before that time, people thought through their issues, their big life issues, in much more moralistic terms. And so Mitchell did this. He was very much driven by a sense of moral responsibility to his family, to his wife, to his colleagues at work, to his birthplace and to his acquired home in Hampshire. He had this enormous protective sense towards them. And then when the vicissitudes came along, it was a question of character to deal with the fact that he had a major operation in 1933, which left him with a colostomy, to actually deal with that. And a colostomy was a much bigger issue then than it is now. There were no pouches and bags and that sort of thing. So this was a major obstacle which he felt he must overcome. And also, of course, the, the threat from Nazi Germany, the threat from sheer absolute barbarism in his eyes, 
quite properly so. And so the quest must go on to build this plane that could deflect the attack that he could see and many others could see coming. Well, it seems to me, having read this book, and I think it's wonderful, I really do, and did enjoy it, it seems to me that you've written it just at the right time. I mean, this, there's a bit of a spitfire mania, particularly in the UK, which is because of the 75th anniversary of VE Day. And then there's the 80th year coming commemoration of the victory of the Battle of Britain in September. So it's quite a lot happening. BBC World Service has started releasing a series of podcasts called Spitfire, the People's Plane. And BBC Teach has a series called Why We All Love the Spitfire. So, you know, you're going to be looking for a British readership, I imagine, as well as a global readership. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think this is a a wonderful story. Once again, it's a story about decency coming out of nowhere, as it were, out of complete obscurity to defeat such a gross indecency as uh, Nazi Germany. And, of course, it's a message for our time, a time, you know, where the great names are singularly lacking in decency, like um, Trump and Putin and Xi and so on. Yes, very good. Winton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for this. Love, Death, Chariot of Fire is available now as a digital book in all the usual places you buy your digital books. And it will be available as a paperback also from the 1st of June. This podcast comes to you from the Two Free Project through Substack, the people who put out our newsletter. You can find the Two Free Project at www.twofree.nz. That's T-U-W-H-I-R-I. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The music for this episode is Threadbow, Threadbow by the Jews Brothers Band on the album My Yiddish Swing on Rouge Records.